Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our studies in the book of Leviticus. And this week we find ourselves in the third Torah portion in Leviticus called Shemini. And it begins in chapter 9, verse 1, and it goes through chapters 9, 10, and 11. Shemini is very unique. It's the only Torah portion named after a number. The Torah portion begins this way. Vahi bayom hashmini. And it was bayom on the day, on the yom of hashmini, the eighth. Shemini comes from the word shemone. Shemone means eight. But an interesting thing happens if we pronounce that exact same word, shemina. When we pronounce it shemina, it means fat. Now, we usually think of fat as not being such a great thing, but in the scriptures, fat is a good thing. Uh, we're not to eat fat, but fatness is always a symbol of God's blessing, God's pleasure. Uh, we're told that uh, we are to let our souls delight themselves in fatness. It's a word that can also mean oil. Shemin can be oil. But uh, shemina is fatness, fullness, uh, robustness, health. And the number eight is the number that lends itself to this word for fat, because eight is a very special number in Scripture. Whenever you see an eight in Scripture, it means a new cycle. It means new life. It means resurrection, new beginning. Uh, we, we know that in uh, the story of Noah and the ark, on the ark there were eight souls because they were going to be uh, the new beginning for the human race. Uh, when a baby boy was born, it was on the eighth day that he would be given his name, usually, that was tradition, and he would be circumcised and welcomed in as a covenant member of the people of Israel. We think of Messiah. He went through that week of unleavened bread uh, and the week of Passover. And, um, but during that week in which he... Uh, was set apart for four days, and he was teaching in the temple. Then he was arrested, he was beaten, he uh, was given a bogus trial, he was crucified, he was buried. And then something unusual happened. After the seventh day of the week, after the Shabbat, he rose from the dead. You could call that the eighth day. And eight is the number of resurrection. You'll find eights throughout Scripture, and they always represent life, new beginnings, resurrection. And so it's appropriate that the number eight should lend itself to the word for fat or for fatness. And so here we find that on the eighth day, the priest had completed their week of inauguration, of doing the sacrifices, of practicing the various uh, tasks within the tabernacle, and so after that week was up, it's now the eighth day. And so we read here, it was on the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And then he tells them to take certain sacrifices and bring them because in verse 6, he says, this is the thing that Adonai has commanded you to do. Then the glory, the kavod of Adonai will appear to you. So 
They bring the sacrifices. They do everything exactly the way Moses told them to do it. And then in verse 22, it says, Aaron raised his hands toward the people and blessed them. And we assume that the blessing he did is what we call the Aaronic blessing, which is found over in Numbers. That's where it's recorded. But it was probably revealed here. So he said, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and so on. Then he descended from having performed the sin offering, the elevation offering, the peace offering. Moses and Aaron came to the tent of meeting and they went out and they blessed the people. So they blessed them again. So they go to the tent of meeting, they go in. And the question is, what did they do in the tent of meeting? And the commentators are almost in in total full agreement that what they did is they went in to kindle the incense on the golden altar. So they go in together and they kindle the incense on the golden altar. And then they come out again, they bless the people. It says, and the glory of Adonai appeared to the entire people. A fire went forth from before Adonai and consumed upon the altar the elevation offering and the fats. The people saw and sang glad song and fell upon their faces. It's almost as if the tabernacle, if you compared it to a car, when they went in and they kindled the incense on the golden altar, which represents prayers. It's like that was the ignition switch. And then the engine literally fired up. According to tradition, fire came down through the top of the Holy of Holies without damaging or burning the tabernacle. It right onto the ark cover, and then it shot out through the parakeet, the veil, right out through the front door, and right on out to the bronze altar, <clears throat> and this fire ignited the sacrifices that were there. And what a, a magnificent display of God's glory this was. Because whenever you see fire in Scripture, it's a picture of God's purity and holiness and power. So, what a day. A fire went out from before Adonai and consumed. You know, God is called a consuming fire. And we first learned this back in Exodus, I think, chapter 24, but don't quote me on that where the fire is on Mount Sinai, and we're told that God is a consuming fire. And here we see him literally as fire coming out and consuming the sacrifices. But two verses later, we see the exact same phrase used again. Because when we go to chapter 10, verse 1, it says, The sons of Aaron... Nadav and Avihu each took his firepan, and they put fire in them and placed incense upon it, and they brought before Adonai an alien fire that he had not commanded them. A fire came forth from before Adonai and consumed them, and they died. And again, in the Hebrew, the words in red, in, in, in the, the original Hebrew, they're, they're identical phrases. And fire went out from before Adonai and consumed In the first passage, God is expressing his pleasure, his delight, and his glory. In the second one, just two verses later, he's expressing his displeasure, but he's also demonstrating his glory. Now, this is something worth pondering. 
And during this teaching, we're going to spend most of our time pondering this particular issue. There are many other important items in this Torah portion, Shemini. But this is something that really calls for our attention. The verse in between 9.24 and 10.2, the verse that between the first coming of the fire and the second coming of the fire, chapter 10, verse 1, this is what it says. We'll read it again. Now, Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered Esh Zarah, Esh Zarah, strange fire, alien fire, and before Adonai, which he had not commanded them. The rabbis give several reasons why God might have kindled his anger against these two eldest sons of Aaron. One of the reasons they give is that they probably were drunk. Because if you go on down to verses 8 and 9, it says, Adonai spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink intoxicating wine, you and your sons with you, when you come to the tent of meeting, that you not die. And it's assumed that that warning is found right there because maybe Nadav and Avihu were celebrating a little too much the night before or even in the morning. And um, because after all, God had demonstrated his acceptance of the tabernacle. He had displayed his glory and everybody was celebrating. So maybe Nadav and Avihu got a little too full of themselves. Another reason, a possible reason is given, is that uh, these two sons of Aaron never married. Uh, they, had, they had no children, we're told that later, so it's assumed they weren't married. And in a Jewish thought, not to marry is not a good thing, because one of the first commandments is to be fruitful and multiply. And they had failed to do this. Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. Another possibility is that if you recall back in Exodus, after God had displayed his power on top of Mount Sinai and Moses wrote down the Mishpatim, that he called Moses and Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, and 70 elders up to the top of the mountain for a covenant meal. So these two sons of Aaron had experienced God in a in a a very intimate way, very spectacular way. It says they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet was like a pavement of sapphire. And they ate and they drank. And it could be there was pride with this familiarity with God, and so they became just too full of themselves, a little cocky, a little too familiar, a little too relaxed and uh, uh, presumptuous with God's presence. There's a well-known piece of Jewish lore. It's a legend, and uh, and I think pretty certainly it did not actually happen, but who knows. But this piece of lore is this, that when God called Moses and Aaron and Nadav and Avihu and the 70 elders up to Mount Sinai, that Nadav and Avihu were walking right behind Moses and their father Aaron, Moses' brother. And that as they were walking up Mount Sinai, they saw these two old men in front of them, Uncle Moses and, and, and Papa Aaron, and the two brothers said, 
These two men are old. They're going to die soon, and we'll be taking their place. And then a voice from heaven spoke. We shall see who shall bury whom. Now, did that actually happen? Probably not. But there's an important lesson here. Because it's very likely that that thought might have gone through their minds as they followed these two old men up the mountain and knowing that they were in line to take their place. Pride is a horrible thing. It's a very dangerous thing. It's something that God wants us to resist and not give in to at any time. Another assumption is that Nadav and Avihu went into the Holy of Holies. When you go to chapter 16 of Leviticus, which is the chapter about Yom Kippur, it begins this way. Adonai spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons when they approached before Adonai and they died. And Adonai said to Moses, speak to Aaron, your brother. He shall not come at any time or at all times into the sanctuary within the curtain in front of the cover that is upon the ark. So this warning to Aaron not to come behind the curtain is given in the context of the death of his two sons. So we can assume that they went in there. We can assume that they were intoxicated. We can assume that they went into the Holy of Holies, which they were not to do. We can also assume that they were a bit prideful. And they became a little innovative in their familiarity about God. But we know two things for sure that are found in this passage. The first one is this. It says, Now Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, his fire pan, and put fire in it and laid incense on it. We learned it late in Exodus in the description of the tabernacle that there were fire pans that were to be made using the materials people donated that were to be part of the altar and used for the altar and for the lighting of the incense. But here it doesn't say that they brought the fire pans that were made for tabernacle use, but they each brought their own, each brought his fire pan. So they were using the wrong vessel to do the work. But the main thing, the inescapable thing, is that they brought strange fire. Aish Zara. Aish Zara. Now, if, if, you, if I come to your home and you have two candles burning, um, and you ask me, what do you think I use to light each of these candles? I can't look at the flame on the candle and say, well, this one looks like it was lit from a match, and, and this one looks like it was lit from a butane lighter. The flames are the flames of the flames. They look exactly alike. But to God, the source of the fire is of utmost importance. Because, you see, it's the fire that ignites and activates the incense. We can assume that Nadav and Avihu brought the right incense, the incense that was created for use in the tabernacle. There's no mention that they brought the wrong incense. And there was a very definite warning given earlier that you do not bring any, any Zara incense, foreign incense, into the tabernacle. So we'll assume we, they brought the right incense. But they activated it with the wrong 
fire. There's a world of things and of illustrations and experiences in my own life that I could draw upon right here where I've seen people try to serve God using the ingredients that God has given them, but they use the wrong vessel and they use the wrong fire to activate the thing God wants them to do. Fire is like zeal. And we can have zeal for doing God's work because we love him, or we can have zeal for his work because we love being seen doing his work. When I think of the Pharisees and the, the hypocritical leaders in Yeshua's time, he talked about the things they did, praying on the street corners, wearing long zitzit, having large phylacteries on their heads, making shows of giving a lot of money to the temple. Now, doing these things are commandments, but they wanted to draw attention to how they were doing them. They wanted to draw attention to the fact that they were doing them, and they were doing them better, more ostentatiously than anyone else. So their zeal was not out of love for God. Their zeal was out of love for themselves. And Yeshua said of that generation of those leaders, Quoting Isaiah, he said, they, they honor me with their lips. They honor me with their flesh, with these appendages on the front of their face. They give me honor with those. But their hearts, the core of their being, far from me. Their hearts are far from me. They're not even on the horizon. So we need to be very careful. What's the fire we're using to do the work for God? And one of the themes that will run through this, this chapter and through this teaching is something I brought up last week and I think the week before, and that is this. We can give God <clears throat> our strength, our time, our possessions. We can give him all kinds of works, but none of those things matter very much if we do not give him ourselves. We're called upon to be living sacrifices. And too often we're willing to sacrifice anything but ourselves. And God calls us to come and die. Come and die to our own drives, our own ways, our own dreams, and become a living sacrifice and live for his dreams, for his desires. Because I can guarantee you they're far superior to our own. But many believers are unwilling to trust God to that degree. A couple of interesting things about the word Aish. The word Aish is spelled Aleph Sheen, just two letters. Aleph is on the right, Sheen is on the left. And Aleph is the first letter of the word Or, which is the Hebrew word for light, Or. And Or is one of the features of fire. It gives light. And sheen is the first letter of the word saraf, which means heat. The seraphim are the fiery angels. But saraf is heat. You know, I have to interrupt for a second. You know, last week we had men sound like they're clog dancing on the roof. Now, I don't know if you can hear all the pecking, but we have wild turkeys pecking on the glass outside the office right here. 
So if it's not one thing, it's another. If it's not workmen, it's turkeys. So hopefully you can't hear that, but if I look a little distracted, i got some turkeys here wanting to get in. So one of these days I'll take a picture and put it online so you can see them. But they go in pairs. They're pretty wild. They're always walking. Anyways, what was I talking about? We're talking about fire. But the word zara, which means foreign, is used in a number of places in Scripture. Uh, here are a few examples. In Proverbs twenty-two fourteen says, The mouth of zara women, forbidden women, is a deep pit. He with whom Adonai is angry will fall into it. So we see women who are zara, who are foreign and forbidden. And then the next chapter of Proverbs, verses 31, 34, it says, Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see zara things, strange things. And your heart will utter perverse things. Hosea 5, 7 says, they have dealt faithlessly with Adonai, for they have borne Zara children. They married pagan idol worshipers and had offspring with them. And these are called alien children. And Psalm 58.3 says, the wicked are Zara from the womb. They are foreign and estranged and, uh, from the womb. You know, I've always wondered about sociopaths. How they become that way? Are they that way from birth? I've never known one to change. But it would appear that according to this psalm, the wicked are zara from the womb itself. They go astray from birth, speaking lies, it says. So, we need to be careful of things that are foreign and not bring foreign things into the worship of God. But one of the things that I think is also very evident, and I've mentioned it, is that a spiritual high, as experienced in chapter 9, often precedes spiritual failure, as we see here in chapter 10. We have many examples of this in Scripture. Take Noah, for example. Noah and his family, these eight souls, and the animals they had with them on the ark were the only living beings to survive the flood, except for the fish. They didn't need to get in the ark. And they survived it. The world has been rinsed clean. Everybody has, has, has perished, as God said they would. And he and his family have survived to make a new beginning. But what happens directly after this, this spiritual, literal, mountaintop experience? <clears throat> Noah plants a vineyard, he drinks the wine, and he gets drunk. And something horrible happens between him and, his, and uh, one of his children. And then we can think of the story of David. David has established his kingdom. Everything's going well. They're winning their victories. He's, he's got his palace there, and he's in Jerusalem, and things are great. And he's feeling so full of himself, and he, and he says... Lord, test me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Test me. So God did. And lo and behold, he looks down and sees Bathsheba. We know how that turns out. He turns out becoming a murderer and an adulterer. I think this is why Yeshua says, Father, lead us not into testing. 
There was enough testing we got each day without asking God to send us more. I think of Peter. You know, Peter was so pumped with all the the wonderful things he had learned at the feet of Yeshua. He's so excited about the kingdom coming. He is one of the few who gets to be a disciple of Messiah. And there at the last Passover Seder, Yeshua announces that he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be arrested and he's going to die. And Peter says, no, Lord, no, don't tell it, this can never be. And, uh, he, and he tells Yeshua, he says, I'll die with you. He was so full of himself, but before sunrise, he denied the master three times. Oh, can you imagine the crushing blow that was when he fell from that spiritual high? But this is something that we find as a pattern in Scripture. Here's, here's a great example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 26, we read the story of King Uzziah. And King Uzziah, <clears throat> he was one of the good guys. He became king, I think, when he was 16 years old, and he ruled for over 50 years. And it tells us early in the story that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was one of the good ones. He fought the Philistines and beat them. He, uh, he strengthened Jerusalem, helped rebuild parts of Jerusalem. He was uh, just a wonderful, wonderful king. But then something happens. At verse 16, listen to what it says. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to Adonai his God and entered the temple of Adonai to burn incense on the altar of incense. Sound familiar? Now, Uzziah was not a Levite. He had no business going in there to do that. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests. Notice it's 80. We've been looking at eight. I think God is trying to make a connection back to Shemini, this Torah portion. With 80 priests of Adonai who were men of valor, And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to Adonai, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from Adonai Elohim. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. He had a fire pan. And when he became angry with the priest... Leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of Adonai by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. Behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to go out because Adonai had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of Adonai. What a sad story. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up, and he did something that was wrong. He overstepped. And that is something we need to be so cautious of. On the one hand, we need to take steps towards God. But like Moses, we need to be sensitive when we hear the voice say, Stop. Take your shoes off your feet and your holy ground. Don't come any closer. There's this holy distance.
It's a similar thing to where, to when a, a man and a woman fall in love and they want to get married. So they want to be close. It's appropriate that they are close. But there's a certain closeness past which they dare not go. That is for after marriage. So for holiness to be maintained, there's a certain distance. We're the same way with God now. He, we're in this betrothal period. We want to be close with him more than anything else. But he's still saying, be patient. Draw near, seek my face. But don't be presumptuous. Don't overstep the bounds. But the day is coming when there will be the wedding feast and there will be no boundaries between us. Uh, he'll be with his people and his people will be with him. He'll be their God. They'll be his people. They'll be one forever. Now that's a day to look forward to. In between, we need to be careful. We need to be cautious. So beware people who boast over familiarity with God and presumptuousness. Um, such people can be dangerous. I want to take a moment to, I haven't done this for a long time, to really take some time and, and look at the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, we're not going to look at all of it. These are the first 12 letters. We have the first six letters at the top and the next six in the second row. And, of course, as we saw with the first letter of H, fire, there's the Aleph. Then we have Beit and Gimel and Dalit and He. But it's number six and number seven I want us to look at. The sixth letter here is a letter Vav. This is letter number six. And Zayin is letter number seven. Vav um, is a letter that means hook. Vav is a hook. And it's also, though, the six is the number of man, we are told. Man was created on the sixth day. When you see sixes in the Bible, it's referring to man. But what does man have to do with a hook? Well, it's in the human being that the physical realm and the spiritual realm are hooked together. In fact, the letter vav, when it's attached to the front of a word, it means and. There is no Hebrew word for and. There's just this letter. And you stick it on the front of a word, and it means and. As we read in the beginning of our Torah portion, it says vahi. There's a vav in the front. And it was beyom hashmini. And then Moses called to the, the, um, to the Levites and so on. And it says, Va, there's that Vav, Yomer. And he said, Va Yomer. So it is in the human being that the spiritual and the physical connect. Like C.S. Lewis said, we're amphibians. We have one foot in the spiritual world, one foot in the physical world. And in us, they are to harmonize. And the enemies desire is to cause disharmony and imbalance to where we become totally physical and we ignore the spiritual. But God wants to feed us spiritual food, not just eat bread alone, but everything that proceeds from God's mouth. So we grow spiritually. We become spiritually sensitive as well as physically sensitive. And we elevate the mundane, the physical, to the holy. And we bring the two together. If we do not do this, we run the risk of going to an extreme, either becoming more of an animal, or with some people, they want to become angels. They become so holy, they have nothing to do with this world. 
And both are extremes. God wants us to engage this world because we are human beings that elevate everything to God's rules. He wants us to build a tabernacle. He wants us to be a tabernacle. So we take the physical materials from this world, but we take the pattern for them, the design, from the heavenlies. And we submit the physical to the heavenly pattern to make a tabernacle so God can dwell within us. This is why a hook, a vav, is the perfect letter to represent man. Now the next letter, number seven, down here at the bottom right is the letter Zayin. Zayin is a weapon. And it's supposed to picture a weapon because the top of the Zayin is supposed to be a handle and this is supposed to be a two-edged blade coming down beneath. A two-edged sword. Now this alphabet here is highly stylized, but it's the closest I could find to what we find in an actual Torah scroll. Um, the script you find in printed Hebrew books like the Komashayef here is uh, a little plainer, more plain Jane, brown paper bag, Hebrew fonts. But in a Torah scroll, it gets pretty fancy. In fact, when you see all of these little decorations, these are the tagin, the tittles. Yeshua talked about how the jots, the tittles, or, uh, the yuds and the tittles, the jots, and the tittles would not pass away from the Torah until everything's fulfilled. So here's a zayin, which is a weapon. Now, let's look at letter number eight, because after all, our Torah portion is Shimoni, the eighth. So eight is what is in view. Here's the eighth letter. It's the letter Chet. And Chet is the first letter of the word Chai. In fact, if you just take the letter Chet and the letter Yud, put them together, you have the word for life, Chai. And often you'll see a piece of jewelry. Uh, my wife, Robin, has a piece of jewelry with the, the word chai, chet yud, hanging there. But what do you notice about the chet? You notice how it is constructed of a vav, yoked to a zayin? This is the way it looks in Torah scrolls. A vav that is yoked, and that is the term the rabbis use for this, this very thin upside-down V that connects the two letters. That's called a yoke. And when you yoke a vav to a zayin, it creates a whole new letter, the letter chet, the eighth letter, the letter of life, the letter of new beginnings, the letter of a, a new cycle. And this is what God wants for us. He wants us to be yoked to him. But now we come to the ninth letter, the letter tet. This is the letter that divides the chet from the yud, the two letters that spell life. There's something in between here that can interrupt this and break this flow of life. It's the letter tet. Now, the letter tet has two faces. It has two meanings. It, has, it represents two things. And at the risk of a, another shameless plug, I know I quoted from one of my other books uh, a couple months ago, but I'm going to quote something from my first book, In His Own Words, which is a book about the Hebrew alphabet. There's a chapter for each letter. And it'd just be a little more concise than if I just continue yammering on about, about these. It says, most Torah scrolls depict both chet and tet. Now that is these two letters right here. Here's the chet. Here's the tet. 
eighth and the ninth letters. Most Torah scrolls depict Chet and Tet as constructed from the combination of a Vav and a Zayin. Chet is comprised of a Vav and Zayin yoked together as equals. But in Tet, we see the Vav on the right bowing in submission to the Zayin on the left. Now, this is the positive aspect of the letter Tet. The rabbis say, and always have said, that this right-hand part of the Tet is actually a Vav. But it's bowing over. It's bowing over in honor of the Zayin. So just as Vav and Zayin are connected here to form a Chet, they are also connected here, but at the bottom to form the Tet. Everybody with me so far? I assume your heads are nodding, and you are. Not only are Chet and Tet comprised of the same two component letters, but Tet reveals a secret contained in the letter Chet. As a yoke of oxen pulls a plow, it appears that each ox does 50% of the work, which is indeed the case for a matched pair of experienced oxen. But in order to train a young ox to pull a plow effectively, it is yoked to an older and more experienced animal so that the younger may learn from the older. The farmer in this case does not expect the young ox to do 50% of the work. His only purpose is for the young ox to learn. So we see here, the Vav yoke to the Zayin. And we learned that Zayin means a weapon. It's a two-edged sword. And who is the word made flesh? Zayin, in many ways, being seven, being the number of perfection, is a picture of Messiah. Messiah in his role of the living word, the two-edged sword, the living word of God. So here we see them yoked together. And the Vav is, is facing in towards the Ket because he he's learning from him. The same is true in the walk of faith. Yeshua said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Messiah's yoke is not given to us that we can perform an equal amount of work. His yoke is given that we may learn his ways. This is the secret of the chet. Recall that chet represents the life that results from our union with Yeshua. The tet represents death. Now, there are two kinds of death. There's the death, of course, I'm interrupting my, my own writing here. There's the kind of death which is me becoming a living sacrifice, where of my own free will, I give myself to my master. I deny myself, I take up my cross, and I follow him. But there's another kind of death. It's a kind of death that is unwelcome. It's a death that is imposed upon us. It's a kind of death that Nadav and Avihu experienced. And because they were not living sacrifices, they became dying sacrifices. So death has two faces. And it says it represents death to everything outside the yoke of Yeshua and death to self and to our way of doing things. This death to self is a vital part of submitting to his lordship over us. In fact, it was once the custom of kings to mark the burial place of their dead with the letter Tet, which in the Jewish mind symbolizes death because the name Tet closely resembles the word Tiyit, mud, the stuff from which our bodies are made and to which they shall return. And we move on to a little bit later. According to tradition, Tet also signifies a serpent. 
Its left side forms the head. There's the head, and its right side forms the tail. So you can see the head and the serpent, and it's facing to the left. Throughout Scripture, the serpent is a symbol of mankind's enemy, Satan. But how can this letter depict a man bowing in submission to Yeshua, the Zion, and at the same time depict Satan and death? Because of his pride, Satan rebelled against his creator and sought to establish himself as a god. Therefore, uh, there is a tendency in each of us to do the same. As long as we occupy these bodies of flesh, the kind of pride and rebellion which motivated Satan can also manipulate us if we allow it. This is why Paul invites us to present our bodies as living sacrifices and thus die to the built-in tendency to live according to our selfish urges. This is the conflict pictured by Tet, the symbol of the serpent and of death. But we must make a choice. We can choose to die in our sins and thus remain separated from God, or we can die to our sins and thus be eternally joined with him. The latter is what is formed by the Tet of the Torah scroll, a man bowing in submission to the Lord Yeshua. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, When Messiah calls a man, he bids him come and die. To be yoked to Yeshua is to be committed to his goals and to walk in his path. But to do so, one must die to one's own ambitions and abandon one's own path. This is exactly what Yeshua meant when he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So Chet depicts Vav and Zion yoked together with a visible above yoke, but here they are connected with something deeper. It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing where internally I'm always yielding and bowing to the Zion. And if I don't do that, what is created is a serpent, the one who refused to bow to God. And interestingly, these two letters together spell the word chet, which is the word for sin. Chet is sin. And these two letters are not found anywhere in the names of the 12 tribes. Chet and Tate are not found there. So you can't spell sin using the letters of the 12 tribes. The Chet and Yad spell life. And for us to experience real life with God, we must pass through a death by either yielding ourselves to his lordship, by saying no to our ways and my own human reasoning and doing what he says, or if we don't do that, we create a serpent in our lives that separates life, ket and yud, the letters for life. Tet, by the way, that can represent a serpent, is used less than any other letter of the alphabet in the, in the Tanakh. It's the least used of the letters. But it's found in Genesis chapter 1 because it's the first letter of the word tov, good. He saw all they made and it was tov, it was good. So again, Tet has two faces. It's either going to be a serpent or it's going to be the vav bowing to the zayin. It's going to be one or the other. 
What is it in your life? You know, I have to, I know I'm going to run over, so I hope you can just brace yourselves. Take a break if you need to. But uh, this is worth going over, I think. When Moses came to the burning bush in, in Exodus, I think it's chapter 4, uh, he was saying, you know, how, how are the people going to believe me that I've actually met with you? And so God says, what is that in your hand? Now, the word what is the word ma, mem, hey, ma, what is that in your hand? So Moses answered, he says, it's a staff, a mate. That's the word for staff, mate. You can probably tell where this is going already. Because you notice the first letter of each word and the last letter of these two words are the same. But what's in the middle? Well, God told him to throw down his mate, throw it on the ground. And when he did, when he released it to God, what was revealed? The tet, the serpent. The tet was revealed. And Moses ran. God says, no, 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 no. Go pick it up by the tail. Pick it up by the tail. What's the tail of the tet? It is the man yielding to Zion. It's the man yielding to the living word of God. And when he did that, it returned to becoming a mate. But from then on, it's called the mate of Moses, the staff of Moses. And oh, the miracles that were accomplished through that staff because the serpent in it had been revealed. The serpent in it had been conquered and taken charge of. And what was a serpent went from being a serpent to being Moses yielded to God. It took time. And it became something tove, something good. As a response to to Nadafanavi, whose deaths, says that Moses said to Aaron in verse 3, this is what Adonai has said, by those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Before all the people, I will be glorified. God's saying, I will be sanctified. Sanctified is not a religious word. That's a religious word, but it represents uh, kadosh, which is not a religious word. It means set apart, a distinction made. And God says, I'm going to be sanctified, I'm going to be set apart, and I'm going to be glorified. But not of an avi who had the choice of setting God apart and, and bringing glory to his name and sanctifying his name by obedience, or they could sanctify his name by allowing him or by, by him destroying them by his own fire. One way or the other, God gets the glory. And he's going to be set apart. God's going to be set apart and get glory if you obey him. And if you do, you get to enjoy the blessings of that. Or he can be sanctified and set apart and glorified by exposing your disobedience and punishing it. Because that also accomplishes the same thing. But it doesn't go so well for you and me when we do not cooperate with God in his ways. But either way, he will be set apart. He's going to be glorified. 
I want to align myself with him in those things. I want to be an example of how things should be done, and instead of being used by God as an example of how things should not be done. I'm going to quickly go over this. Um, we have these two dead bodies in the tabernacle, and it says in verse 4, Moses summoned Mishael, and there you see Mishael's name at the top, and Elzaphon, and there's Elzaphon, the second name, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and there's Uziel, their third name. So these two are sons of Uziel. Okay? They're products of Uziel. I find their names fascinating. Uh, Moses, by the way, he calls upon these three men and said to them, Approach, carry your brothers out of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. They approached and carried them by their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had spoken. I find their names fascinating. Because whenever there are people who, like Nadav and Avihu, do not surrender to God's ways. They want to worship him using their own vessel, using their own fire, instead of doing things the way God says to do it. When they operate in pride and when they operate in um, presumption and arrogance, and they bring strange fire, and there are consequences, there's always a Mishael, an Elzaphon, and an Uziel who have to clean up the mess. Now, their names are very interesting. Mishael can be translated a couple different ways. Um, You saw that the word ma means what? Well, the word me, these first two letters, mean who. So, it starts with who. And uh, it can be translated who, Sha'al. That's the word Saul, by the way like the Apostle Paul and King Saul, and Sha'al means to ask. So, it's like who asks, or who's asking. But it can also be translated a slightly different way. And it could, once again, would be who. And then here we see the last two letters of the word L, which mean God, And the shin can serve as a connecting word. We see this more often later in the Tanakh, not so much in the Torah, but later in the Tanakh. Shin is used to mean kind of uh, like or derive from. And and so this is one of the translations. Uh, Who is what God is? And I didn't make that up. That actually came out of a book. Who is what God is? In other words, what, what's God made of? Who is he? What, what's the deal with God? So we could always look at it this way. Who is God? What was? And then God says, well, who's asking? And then we get some instruction here. Once again, we see Aleph Lamed. There's the name God, or the word God again, just like we saw in the first word. And last week, we learned that the word Zaphon, which... Uh, means hidden and is part of Zophona, northward. So it means God hides. So who is what God is? Who's asking? He hides. Who's asking? He hides himself. You can't know who he is, what he is. You can't know it fully. 
But these two gentlemen, Mishael and Elzaphon, are sons of Uziel. There's Uzi, and that's where we get the name of the, the Israeli machine gun, the Uzi. And so we could call this the machine gun of God, because there's El once again. We find the word God in all three names, Uziel. But Uzi means my help. My help. My Uzi is of God. Or I could just say, God is my help. God's my Uzi. So what is God? Who's, who's God? Who's asking? He hides himself. But here's one thing you can know. God's my help. Like in the book of Esther we talked about last week, he hides, he conceals himself, he is impossible to understand, but he is so faithful, so trustworthy. You can always count on him. He never fails. So we can ask our questions, but we can always trust God, even if we don't have the answers. There's a rabbi who lived back in the 13th century. He lived from 1255 to 1340. He was a rabbi in Spain, a genius. His name was Rabbi Bakya ben Asher. Bakya ben Asher. He wrote a, an amazing commentary on the Torah, and it's in print. It's been translated into English, in fact, and it's wonderful. He says, there are 12 times in our history, he says, that, that God brought fire from heaven to his people. Six of those times were to express his pleasure, and six of the times were to express his displeasure. And so I've put the six times that God sent fire to express his pleasure, and then below that, the six times where God sent fire to express his displeasure. And these are worth a study on their own. Uh, for the first one is the inauguration of the tabernacle we just read about in Leviticus 9.24. When God called uh, Gideon to lead the people of Israel, God sends fire to exhume a, a sacrifice. When God announces to Samson's parents, Manoach and his wife, that they're going to have a, a son and he's to be a Nazarite from the day of his birth, they were so sure that this angel was really uh, speaking for God, so they brought a sacrifice and the angel stepped into the fire and went up into the smoke. He ascended into heaven. Then they knew this was an angel of the Lord. When David purchased the threshing floor, which is now known as the Temple Mount, he made an altar, he put a sacrifice on it, and fire came out of heaven and consumed that sacrifice. When Solomon dedicated the temple, like when they dedicated the tabernacle here, fire came from God, consumed the sacrifices on the altar. Then Elijah, the showdown with the priest of Baal on Mount Carmel. They called down fire from Baal, but Baal didn't show up. No fire came. So Elijah calls down fire from Adonai, and fire came. Now, I have a number seven here with a blank. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But how about the times God's fire, the same fire comes from heaven and brings destruction and consumes, but it's expressing displeasure. The first instance of that is here with Nadav and Avihu in Leviticus 10, verse 2. Later on in the book of Numbers, the Israelites complain, God sends fire, consumes around the edges of the camp. Korah's rebellion, 
God sends fire. It burns up 250 of Korah's followers. We read about Job's servants being killed in Job 1.16. And then, interesting story, back-to-back stories. Uh, Elijah, uh, the, the king sends a captain and 50 men to bring Elijah in. So, they say, you've got to follow us, Elijah. And Elijah calls on fire and burns up the captain's 50 men. So the king sends a next, another captain, 50 more men. Same thing happens. The third captain came with a little more humility. He knew he had to be shaken in his sandals. But, uh, so Elijah went with him. But as I looked over this list that Rabbi Bakke put together, I started thinking, well, wait a minute. I can think of another example of where God sent his fire to bring destruction. Fire from heaven. Can you think what it is? You want to pause and discuss it and see if you can come up with it. Uh, but now I'm going to assume you've, you've figured it out. But it's in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll just put Sodom here for the sake of brevity. And it's in Genesis 19. And it says that God sent fire, and brimstone out of heaven and consumed them. Now, I know Rabbi Bakian knew of this. Of course he did. He was a Torah genius. Why didn't he include it? Maybe he just wanted two neat lists of six. But then he was talking about things that happened to our people because the people destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah were not Jews. They were not uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whereas in the other cases, um, we're, we're looking at people who were Jewish or partially Jewish. So who knows? But I started thinking, there's also another instance where God sends fire from heaven to show his pleasure. And this, of course, is at Shavuot. In the year that Yeshua rose from the dead, You can read all about it in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And God sent fire from heaven, and it rested on the heads of the apostles. Now, Rabbi Baki was not a Messianic Jew, at least not to to my knowledge, so uh, he probably wouldn't have been aware of this instance. Well, let's continue on and finish up. When God tells Moses and Aaron that they can't be drunk when they come in to minister into the tabernacle, he tells them why, why they need to be stone-cold sober. It's in order to distinguish, the havdil is the word, um, when God separated the waters above from the waters below, that's the word havdil. I think it's the same word that's used to separate the light from the dark. We see separation going on in the first three days of the creation story. Havdil. And that is what's used here, to separate, to to distinguish between. And we, as sober-minded servants of God, we need to be able to separate and distinguish. And he says they need to be able to distinguish between the holy, the, the kodesh, and the common, the whole, the holy and the common, the set apart to God and the common. And between the Tameh and the Tahor, 
Both of those words in Hebrew, by the way, begin with the letter tet, tamay, which means unclean, and the word tahor, which means pure, clean. Words that we'll see quite often in the next several Torah portions of Leviticus when we discuss leprosy. What's the difference between the first category, oops, this first category and the second? What's the difference between the holy and the common on one hand and the unclean and the, un, and the clean on the other? We can't confuse that clean and holy mean the same thing and that common and unclean mean the same thing because they don't. But that's something that's well worth a discussion in your groups. But we need to distinguish between the two. Now, clean and unclean, I'll give you this hint, are usually something that is obvious to the eye. Later on, when someone contracts leprosy or what they think might be leprosy, they show themselves to the priest. The priest looks with his eyes. He looks at what they're showing him. And then he may perform a, a test. He may do a quarantine to see how this thing changes. But eventually, he will pronounce this blemish either clean or unclean based on what he sees. It's based on observance. And we as believers, as disciples of Messiah, we need to look at the world and ourselves and circumstances through the glasses, through the corrective lenses of the Torah, so we can see what is clean and what is unclean. We need to see with the eyes of a priest. We are to be priests in our homes. We are to be a kingdom of priests to our God. So we need to be able to tell the difference between clean and unclean. And so many times failures in, in redeemed communities occur because they have people in charge who cannot tell the difference between what is clean and what is unclean. What can be welcomed into the camp and what must be expelled from the camp. But holy and common, these do not appear to the eye. For example, if a man has two sheep, and one of them he has dedicated for a sacrifice in the temple, and the other he's just raising to use its wool and maybe just to have a meal later on himself. You can't look at the two sheep and tell which one is set apart and which one is for common use. You can't look at it. It's not visible. It has everything to do with the heart and the intent of the owner. And we need to be able to discern, this is a spiritual discernment, to discern the heart and the intents, not only of our own hearts, but also the hearts of those who are under our authority. And sometimes the hearts of those who have authority over us. So we'll know whether that's a godly authority or not. Whether we should remove ourselves from that authority or stay put. This is how we can tell if it's a fire that comes from the altar or whether it's a fire that comes from some foreign source. Because to the eye, they look the same. So, the first two have very much a, a spiritual dimension to them. Whereas the second two have more of a physical dimension to them. 
But why must we be able to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean? So as to teach. So as to teach. So as to demonstrate through our lives what God's will is. It says, so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes. That's the word chukim. The chukim are the rules God makes that don't make common sense. They're the rules and laws he gives us that you would not arrive at through human logic. They're his rules because they're his rules and we do them because he tells us to do them and we have committed ourselves to obeying him. But if we can't distinguish the source, we can't distinguish what's clean and unclean, we'll not be able to teach his chukim and demonstrate them in our lives. How many times has God spoken and given clear direction, but because it didn't make sense to our human logic, we reject it because we can't discern between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. And quickly, I'll finish with this. Back in chapter 1, a couple of weeks ago, as we were looking at the first Parsha of Yikra, we looked at this all-important word, this word karav. And one of the questions I asked in the discussion questions, how many times does this word or a word that comes from this root karav appear in the first nine verses? And well, they answer, and if you came up with this, you're right, it occurs nine times in the first nine verses. And the word kara means to draw near. It's from this word kara we get the word korban, which is an offering. And we get our word carbon because when you offer something up, it, what's left is the ash, the carbon. But we saw also in verse 9, it's the same word that means innards. So the word to draw near and the word for innards are the same word. Because we don't draw near with our outwards. We don't draw near to God physically. If I'm going to draw near to God, I don't have to go someplace. He's everywhere. But if I want to draw near to him truly, I draw near to him by bringing my innards in alignment with who he is. It's through a spiritual nearness. It's through a spiritual drawing near to him. I can't do it physically. I can do it spiritually. And that is what we are supposed to do. Now, there's a similar kind of a word we find in our Torah portion. If you go to chapter 10, and we have some information about bringing sacrifices. And in verse 14, it says, And the breast of the waving, the wave offering, and the thigh of the raising up, you shall eat in a pure place, and your sons and daughters with you, for they have been given as your portion, the portion of your sons, from the feast peace offerings of the children of Israel. So this is commandments to the priest and their families that they are allowed to eat the chest of the animal and then the right thigh of the animal. That is always there from all the sacrifices. And then again in verse 15, they are to bring the thigh of the raising up and the breast. The word for breast or chest is the word chazah. Chazah. That's the word used there. But the word chazah has a second meaning as well. And that second meaning is to see. Just as karav means to draw near, 
and also innards. Here we find the word chazah means the chest, which was given to the priest, but it means to see. We all want to draw near to God. We all want to be able to see him more clearly, but we can only see him spiritually. We can't see him physically yet. That day is coming, though. It means to see. There are some examples of this word. I think I put them on the list. Yes. Exodus 18.21, where uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, counsels Moses. He says, Moreover, chazah, capable men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs. So he said to look out, to see men, chazah men, who have these qualities. And in Exodus 24, where Moses and Aaron and Nadav and Avihu and the 70 elders go up to have a covenant meal with God, it says, and they chazah God and ate and drank. They saw God. Chazah means to see. And just as it's with the innards I draw close to God, it's with that same area within my heart, with this part of me, this inward part that I begin to see him. I must draw close to him first before I can see him spiritually. Both, again, are spiritual exercises. It's from this word chazah that we get the word chazan in your siddur. You'll see where there are places where the people will read and speak or read silently, but then they'll say the chazan picks it up here. The chazan is the cantor. The cantor, the one who leads prayers. And I know so many times over the years, just to encourage our cantor, whoever he might be, before he goes up to lead prayers, I would say to them, be sure when you go up, do not read the prayers. Pray the prayers. Because when the cantor goes up to pray the prayers, it's important that he can chazah in his mind God on his throne. He must chazah God's majesty. He must chazah his nearness and his graciousness, his chesed, his loving kindness. He must chazah his, his awesomeness and his majesty. He, has, he must see these things in his mind. Because if the cantor, the chazan, can chazah these things, then those who are behind the cantor and facing front with him can begin to see these things as well. But a cantor who doesn't see, a cantor who just reads the prayers and just dribble out of his lips onto the floor, it doesn't help the people. There is something very supernatural that takes place when a person who's leading in prayer, reading and, and praying these ancient prayers of Israel, when they truly in their hearts see God and focus their attention on God, then something happens with all the people who are praying, who have a heart at all attuned to God. They begin to see God as well. The cantor is the one who opens the door, but we're going to see what he sees. And if he's not seen something, it makes it dead for everyone else. So in your home groups, and when we meet together corporately, I just encourage whoever might be leading prayers, don't just read the prayers, don't just study them, but be a chazan, one who sees, one who sees, 
who are addressing our hearts to. And that changes everything. Well, with that, discussion questions. What are other biblical examples of someone getting too full of themselves and making a fool of themselves? Because getting full can make you a fool. And do you have a personal example that might not be too embarrassing to share? I know I can share a bunch, but I'm not. Uh, what kinds of strange fire, Aish Zara, do you see being offered to God today? And we've all had experiences in churches and synagogues, I'm sure, where there was some strange fire being offered. And don't share these just to be critical, but share these as insights that can be constructive, as good warnings, so that we will not fall into the same error. Number three, how can fire be destructive and a blessing as well? When God sent fire from heaven, it was the same fire. It was his holiness. And our God is a consuming fire, we're told. And we need to be very respectful when we're around him. So, what, uh, how can fire be destructive and how can it be a blessing? Discuss Leviticus 10, verses 10 and 11. How can we def- uh, apply this to our own lives? And then the fifth question, compare the stories of Nadav and Abihu with the story of the apostles on Shavuot in Acts 2, verses 1 to 3. Why were the experience of God's fire so very different? Why were they so very different? Interesting little piece of lore. Uh, Again, we don't have any proof of this in Scripture, but the lore, the well-known legend is, is that when the fire went forth from God and killed Nadav and Avihu, it came and it split into two streams and went into their nostrils. And I think that that is what is being echoed in Acts chapter 2 when it says that the flame was cloven. That's what King James says. It was split into two, but it rested on their heads. And whereas the cloven flame killed Nadav and Avihu, it designated the apostles as being God's men. So with that, let's close in prayer. Our Father and our holy, majestic King, how we thank you and we love you. Lord, we haven't looked at too much of this Torah portion this morning, but the little bit that we did look at holds much for our instruction and for, for our admonition, for our correction. So Lord, I pray that we would take these things to heart. Forgive us for the times we learn things and we tuck them away in our memories but they never make it down deep into our inner being to actually change us, to actually bring correction and adjustment in our walk with you and to our walk in this world. So, Father, I pray you'd use these truths to accomplish spiritual, deep, real accomplishments in our lives so that we can be the men and the women that you want us to be. We ask it in Yeshua's name. Amen.